I stole that from Harry Potter. I'm a fan. Uh, if this is your first time here, rest assured, we're not going to be talking about spells. There's not going to be any witchcraft. I assure you, we don't believe in that sort of thing. Uh, but I just thought this would be a really cool title that would grab people's attention. But I'm sure you're all probably wondering, Jake, what in the world are the dark arts? What is this? Where are you going with this? So here's how I am defining it. The dark arts are attacks and hindrances that we can come across on our journey of faith in Christ. Things that undermine, try to undermine our faith in, in the Bible and Scripture and just our faith in Christ. And with the times that we live in, it is more important than ever for people to have a solid and strong foundation in their faith. And it's something that I'm just extremely passionate about, and it's why we do things at Radius Church like Foundations Class and just getting into some of the basics and building the solid foundations of your faith and of Christianity. It's why we do things like that. Uh, it's gonna, foundations Class is going to be coming back later this year, so uh, be on the lookout for that. We don't have an exact date yet, but it is coming back. But it's why we're passionate about things like that and things like discipleship, because I, I desperately want... Christians, and especially the Christians and the people at Radius, to have a solid and strong foundation in their faith. And so I want to just start off by asking a question. And the question is simply this, why are you a Christian? And it's not something that you need to answer out loud, but it's something that you can just think about for yourself, at least for those of you who would call yourself a Christian. Why, why do you believe this? What has God done in your life to bring you to him? And can you, can you articulate that? Can you explain that? Can you give a reason for why you are a Christian? And the reason I bring that up is because the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Can you do that? I came to a point in my life, I'd say about 10 years ago, where I felt like I didn't really have a good answer to those types of questions, that I needed a stronger foundation in my faith. And oftentimes, if I think being able to answer those questions are really kind of the start of building a strong foundation. And if we don't have a good answer to those questions, it leaves us more susceptible to the dark arts, so to speak. And that's why we need a foundation. And I keep using that word foundation because there is a trend that is happening in our world today and in America, and particularly amongst younger Christians, millennial and Gen Z, that is called deconstruction. Maybe you've heard of this. And it is defined kind of in a few different ways. Sometimes it's seen as like a reappraisal or reevaluation of somebody's faith. Uh, sometimes it's seen as this sort of season of honest questioning and doubt that we're going through. Uh, but oftentimes it is understood as this sort of demolition of Christian faith and belief that often leads to the abandonment of that belief. And so I want to talk a little bit about deconstruction today. So I, I don't think it should just automatically be equated with something bad and negative that we by all means need to avoid. 
I think in some ways going through seasons of reevaluating your faith, trying to get a better understanding of it, going through seasons of questioning and doubt, and I'll just say personally I've gone through seasons like that in my life, are sometimes just, those are sometimes just natural, normal, healthy parts of our walk of faith and, and our spiritual transformation that we can go through. And I mean, if, if you're going through something like that in your life, just know you're not alone and you're not the only one. I mean, if, if you look in the Bible, the Bible is filled with people who were challenged and who questioned and who doubted. I mean, read the book of Job for crying out loud, okay? If, if you're, when you're reading the Bible, if you don't have questions, are you really even reading it, right? And so, of course, there's always going to be that aspect to our walk of faith. And so I don't want it to automatically be equated with something bad or dangerous. I don't want Christians to feel weak or embarrassed or ashamed to be going through things like this because you're in good company uh, and you're not the only one. Also, too, it's interesting. The word Israel actually means he who wrestles with God. So, yeah, there was definitely some wrestling happening in the Bible. And if you're going through that wrestling season, you're not the only one. But we need to be able to handle these things in a good and wise and healthy way. And ultimately, I think it is the church's responsibility to be able to be there to help people go through and navigate these seasons in their life. So I want to give you a list of five reasons why people are deconstructing today. Five of the big reasons why we're seeing deconstruction in our world today. So reason number one is that trust in large institutions is declining all across the board. And the four primary institution, institutional pillars of modern society are government, media, business, and church. What do you think the approval rating is on those? Not great, right? Not great. And according to Gallup's Honesty and Ethics Survey, Americans' trust in pastors hovers at an all-time low. Pastors and spiritual leaders, and there is a generational gap. And to give you some data here on the screen, it says 51% of Americans 55 years or older have favorable views of church leaders, but only 24% of 18 to 34-year-olds said that pastors and clergy have high honesty. People are losing trust in the church, and in large part that is because of experiences we're having where people feel hurt, people feel deceived, lied to. I'm sure there's people within the sound of my voice that can relate and have had personal experiences that have caused you to lose trust. Reason number two is the acceptance of political idolatry and conspiracy theories in Christian communities. And I'm just going to give you a couple quotes for this one because they really say all that needs to be said. Former missionary Amy Peterson writes, People of my generation aren't leaving the church because their devious atheist professors got to them, but because they saw a church more interested in defending political power than in loving their neighbors. Yeah. Uh, Tim Keller, in an editorial for the New York Times, wrote, uh, while believers can register under a party affiliation and be active in politics, they should not identify the Christian church or faith with a political party as the only Christian one. When we start making this platform less about the gospel and more about a political agenda, we are missing the point. Yeah. Uh, number three is the prioritization of conformity over unity. 
And unfortunately, many faith communities and churches have kind of narrowed the discipleship path to this very rigid set of doctrinal stances that really sort of double as this source of like tribal identity and pride. We've like reduced Christianity just down to this like denominational belief structure, and that is it. And it has to be more than that. Uh, a woman by the name of Bonnie Christian in her book, A Flexible Faith, said, we can get so stuck in our own little pool that we never notice the stream of orthodoxy is wide and deep and beautiful. Without even realizing it, we can become convinced our own tradition of Christianity is the one Christian alternative to non-belief. It's very interesting that in our world today, there are thousands and thousands of Christian denominations. And when we get so rigid that we think there is only one possible answer, one possible denomination, I think we're somehow getting off track a little bit. I'm going I'm to kind of come back to that one in a little bit and expand on that. But reason number four has to do with that we live in a more diverse and accessible and mobile world. For most of human history, people didn't have to worry all that much about having their faith and belief claims questioned and criticized and challenged, but we no longer live in that kind of world. Theologian Gregory Boyd writes, it's much easier to remain certain of your beliefs when you are not in personal contact with people who believe differently. But when you encounter people with different beliefs, and when those people's sincerity and devotion possibly put yours to shame, things become a bit more difficult. Yeah. Now, I want to make sure that I'm clear here, because what I'm not saying is that things like cultural diversity and freedom of religion should be seen as a threat to the gospel. They absolutely should not be seen as a threat to the gospel. These are both good things. Diversity and freedom of religion are good things. And also, Christianity is the most geographically diverse religion in the world. However, just given the times and the world that we live in, it's just easier to have your beliefs cha challenged. It just happens more frequently to be confronted with people who believe differently. And the fifth and final one is biblical illiteracy. Sometimes the church's teaching on the Bible itself has left young people, and really just all people of all ages, more susceptible to the dark arts and to deconstruction. And I'm going to just be brief with this one because this is going to factor into what I'm going to be talking about here in just a little bit. So the dark arts, what I'm talking about here is attacks that we go through and hindrances that can happen on our journey of faith. And the attacks are, can come from two sides. Sometimes we get attacked from the outside, and then if we don't have a safe place to go to inside the church, right, it's kind of this recipe for a disaster. It's easy to just sit here and point your finger and play the blame game and say, all the bad people out there, they're the reasons why people are deconstructing. Uh, but if you noticed on that list of five reasons that I just gave you, the church is direct, directly responsible for four out of those five things. That means we have got to turn the finger to ourselves first and say, what can we do better? How can we do a better job? I think something that was, has struck me as really interesting in the Garden of Eden story was that the snake came from within the garden. We don't read about the snake breaking down through the barrier walls to get into the garden. It came from within. It was already inside. And there's something there that I think is a reminder that, hey, we need to look at ourselves sometimes really often and say, what can we do better? How can we, 
How can we help people navigate through these seasons of life? And so because of the experiences that people are having, because of the world that we live in, young people today not only want to go deep, they need to go deep. There is a need more than ever for people to have a strong foundation. So are you guys ready to go deep? We're going to get into some deep stuff here. Okay. So what I mean by that is this. So for the rest of today and into next week, I'm going to go over some big attacks of the dark arts and how we can defend ourselves against these attacks. So here we go. The first thing I want to talk to you about is what's called postmodernism. Now, postmodernism is more or less sort of this like philosophy worldview that emerged in the, 20th, in the mid 20th century, but it is characterized by a skepticism towards grand narratives, absolute truths, and fixed meanings. Postmodernism, it rejects the idea of objective and universal knowledge and instead emphasizes subjectivity, cultural context, and the diversity of human experience. Now that's a lot, that's just kind of a lot to process and a lot of big words. So to put it simply, postmodernism is when we hear people say, you do you. You have your truth, I have my truth, right? It's all relative, why can't we all just get along sort of thing, right? You have your truth, I have my truth. Don't criticize my truth because it's mine, it comes from my personal experiences, my lived experiences. And listen, of course there are things like the diversity of cultures and human experiences, but that doesn't mean that there's no absolute truth. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's all relative. And, and to kind of expand on that, we see this you-do-you mentality, that you being able to express yourself exactly how you see fit, to feel your authentic self and express yourself exactly how you want to is now seen as the highest order of freedom and goodness. And so here's the thing though, if your idea of truth is only built on your personal experiences and that is only how you derive truth for yourself, that's not good enough. Here's why. Listen, of course we're all molded and shaped by our experiences. I mean, how can we not be, right? Everybody's in this place today, you've had an experience that has led you here today. And for probably the majority of you, you've had some sort of experience that has led you to the saving knowledge of Christ. And those are obviously real, true, good experiences. But truth has to exist outside of your personal experiences because it's very possible that your experiences can lead you to believe something false. How is it that people can have very similar experiences and yet arrive at two completely different conclusions? Right? How is it that somebody can go through unimaginable pain and tragedy and abandon belief in God, and yet somebody else can go through unimaginable pain and tragedy and yet draw closer to God and have more faith in Him than ever before? And so postmodernism would say, well, they're both just getting truth from their experiences, and so so are they both right then? Like, that doesn't make any sense. How does that work? If God exists, only, only one of them made the right and true decision, right? And so we are seeing this postmodern mindset um, very prevalent, very often in our world today, to where we have really sacrificed truth for the sake of kindness. It's kindness now at all costs. And I recently heard about this story of these, um, there were some teachers in America who decided to move down to South America to 
Peru to, to build a school, to help bring some education to areas that didn't have much education opportunities. And so they went down to Peru, they built a school. And they started running into some challenges. And so what was happening was there were some students from some local tribes, they were coming into the school and, and getting educated. And they were taking classes on human anatomy, and science, and biology. And they were learning things that were conflicting with their cultural understanding of truth. And what was happening was, in these students' tribe, when a woman wanted to get pregnant, she would sleep with every man in the tribe. And every man in the tribe was then seen as an equal part of that child's father. And he would have multiple fathers. They were all seen as the father to that baby. Well, they were now going to school and learning, well, that's not really what happens. You only have one mother and one father because we know that by DNA and genetics and all that stuff. But the school was then getting absolutely criticized over this. How dare you take your modern Western understanding of truth and use it to impose on these people's cultural idea of truth? That's oppressive. That's harmful. How can you do that? And so, again, there are many examples that could expand on that, but you get the idea. Um, and also, regarding postmodernism, we are now seeing this sort of postmodernist mindset merge and enter into some Christian churches in our world today. We are now seeing teachings of pluralism on the rise, which basically pluralism is this idea that really all religions are equal, they're all equal paths to God, it doesn't really matter what you believe, you know, we're all headed in the same direction, we're all going to get there in the end anyway, so, you know, why can't we all just get along? We're seeing teachings like that being taught in Christian churches now. We're seeing Christian churches uh, basically sometimes even reject or not take a firm stance on essential Christian doctrine. And I'm talking about things that are like the divinity of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And in this sort of, you know, resistance to you know, trying not to be exclusive by making absolute truth claims, we're just seeing this sort of thing in Christian churches. Well, you know, we don't know if the resurrection was a literal historical thing. It may have just been more of a metaphorical, symbolic sort of thing. And we're seeing this sort of thing in Christian churches today. Because here's the tricky part, though, because we're not after conformity, as I just mentioned a little bit ago. I don't expect everybody in here to look like, act like, talk like me, or to interpret the Bible the same way that I do. And as that quote told us, there is a very rich and diverse history within Christianity with all sorts of different styles and methods and doctrinal stances and theology and all that. However, through all that, all the diversity, we have to get to a foundation. And for 2,000 years, all basically representations of Christianity, whether it be Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, have really pretty much been in unanimous agreement on some core fundamental stances. That there is one God, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he was fully human and fully divine, that he resurrected, and that salvation is a gift of grace through faith. And so despite all the diversity and all the different denominations, there has to be this foundation that we, that Christians have agreed on and been united around for the last 2,000 years. And so we have got to be able to stand by that. We have got to say, no, this is who we are, this is what we're not, this is what we affirm, this is what we don't. 
So again, I'm not after conformity, but if there, can, if there isn't something that we are united around, if there isn't something that we're in agreement around, then we have nothing to be united around, right? If there isn't some agreement on some things, we have nothing to be united around, and then we can kind of just define Christianity however we sort of choose, right? So we're not after conformity. Diversity is still a good thing, but there has to be something central that we can be united around. So... That is postmodernism. The second thing that I want to talk to you about is what I'm going to call the issue of inspiration. The issue of inspiration, and this has to deal with more of like criticisms of the Bible and certain passages in the Bible and how we handle those sort of things. So we all approach the Bible with certain kind of assumptions and expectations, right? We would all have, if I was asked two questions of what is the Bible and what do we do with it, because those are two loaded questions, but we'd all kind of have a general idea of how we would, you know, what we think about that and how we would answer those types of questions. And in large part, all of our assumptions and expectations and all that stuff are, are built on a lot of things, namely what sort of church we grew up in, who our pastors was, maybe what our denomination was, what our parents told us about, you know, the Bible or Christianity or whatever. And oftentimes we can think that that's how everybody just kind of approaches it the same exact way. And if you've been in church, you may hear words like uh, the Bible is inspired or it's inerrant or authoritative and all these words we like to use sometimes. And so what is happening, and again, to kind of expand on um, just the fact that our world is so diverse today, um, it's just so easy to run into conflicting things, right? The things that are a challenge. And so... Um, one of the things that um, one of the things that's happening is, you know, people will go off to to school and they'll take a philosophy of religion class, and their sort of fundamental understanding of the Bible will just get rocked and totally, you know, flipped upside down. Or just even talking with with people who just believe different. And for for me myself personally, I watch a ton of YouTube. I'm a big YouTube guy, and I watch a lot of videos on like Christian apologetics, which is just kind of a defense of the Christian worldview and the Christian faith. And um, and so I'm I'm constantly running into all sorts of attacks and criticisms that people have with the Bible, and so they're just things that are just very familiar to me. And so these attacks are really attacking how we approach and understand the Bible at a fundamental and foundational level. So I want to talk about what does it mean that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? What exactly does that mean? And so I want to read to you out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this is why I'm using that word inspired. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work inspired by God. One, some of the translations will say God breathed or breathed out by God. Now, what exactly does that mean? And depending on how church has told us what this word is, or depending on how our understanding of inspiration has been taught, and this really factors into the biblical illiteracy that I mentioned, Depending on how we understand inspiration, it can either be helpful and help us strengthen our foundation, or it can be a hindrance, and it can leave us more susceptible to the attacks. So, I'm going to give you a couple examples today of some 
portions in scripture that are a little weird or a little confusing or a little challenging. Because if you start looking through the Bible very closely with certain understandings of what it means that it is the inspired word of God, you're going to come across some things that are going to be challenging and difficult to reconcile. So let's get into a couple examples. The first one is in Ezekiel chapter 1. So this is a pretty obscure portion of Scripture, but I said we're getting deep, so here we go. All right? Here's what it says. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Kabar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and the hand of the Lord was on him there. As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, and it continues on. And I'm sure you're probably wondering, Jake, what in the world is this? So if you'll go to the next slide, I've highlighted some words. So what happens here is the first verse starts off in the first person, and then it goes to the third person, and then it goes back to the first person again. And so we'll see attacks like, well, if this really was the inspired word of God, why does it do this? Everybody knows when you write a book, you don't switch between first and third person because that's confusing, that's wrong, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Why, why, how could this be inspired by God? If the Holy Spirit is producing this, why does he switch between first and third person? What's going on here? Why does this do this? Let me give you another example. Don't worry, we're going to come back to this. Acts chapter 17, verse number 28. And my dad kind of set me up for this last week as he, he read this verse. But here's what it says. This is Paul. Uh, he's addressing the Areopagus, which he's, there's just a ton of people he's talking to. There's some like Greek philosophers and just a bunch of other people. And so he's giving this big speech. And this is in the middle of his speech. He says this, for in him we live and move and have our being, which is a pretty famous portion of scripture. Then it goes on. It says, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. So I highlighted that right there, for we too are his offspring, because Paul is actually quoting a Greek poet by the name of Eratus, and Eratus was a pagan, or not a Christian. So, again, the attack would kind of sound something like this. You know, hey, Christians, did you know that your Bible that you claim to be the Word of God actually has pagan Greek poetry in it? That seems pretty weird for something to be the Word of God but also have pagan Greek poetry. What in the world's up with that? How can it be inspired if it does that? Why is that in there? It's not the only place Paul quotes pagan Greek poets either. And so what do we do when our Bible kind of does this sort of weird stuff like this that can kind of be a very challenging thing to how we understand it being the inspired Word of God? And so these verses and others like them, and believe me, there are many other examples that I could give, are being used to undermine people's confidence in Scripture. And so what I'm going to propose is that we need a better understanding of inspiration and what exactly that means. Sometimes when the church teaches on inspiration, and it's never really explicitly stated like this, but it's communicated like this basically, is that sometimes inspiration is viewed as this sort of paranormal twilight zone type of event where the Holy Spirit comes down, puts the writer in a trance, takes over his body, and makes him write out the words, okay? 
Sometimes inspiration is taught as dictation, where the Holy Spirit, again, sort of comes down and whispers into the author's ear, word for word, verbatim, exactly what is to be written down. That is not what happened, and I don't think those are helpful understandings of inspiration. I think we need a more solid understanding of inspiration that can actually account for some of the weird stuff we see in the Bible. So one of the things that has really helped me in understanding inspiration is this simple statement. Inspiration is not an event, it is a process. And I'm going to expand on that. So, when God was choosing the authors to write the Bible, he was guiding and directing their entire lives so that they would go where they needed to go and hear and see and learn what they needed to hear and see and learn so that when the proper time came, they were fully prepared to write what God wanted them to write. God oversaw the entire process. They were ordained and appointed by God to do this job. So, how does that factor into the couple of examples that I just gave? First, let's go back to the example from Ezekiel. And if you could actually jump back to that verse, that would be cool so we can see it. So, why in the world does this switch between first person I to third person Ezekiel, him, right? What's going on here? Well, this shows that there was, brace yourself, an editing process. Now, To say that the Bible was edited can freak some people out, okay, if we have a certain understanding of inspiration. But if we can understand inspiration as a process, here's what that process would have looked like. So the prophet Ezekiel, he would go around and preach and speak in the name of the Lord and prophesy. And oftentimes we think of prophecy as like, you know, the prophets, they would predict the future, and that's kind of what they did, but that's sort of in the small minority of what they did. Mainly what the prophets did was they would enforce the covenant, okay? They were, they were on the Israelites' case, okay? They would, you know, uh, they would make sure and hold them accountable, you know, hey, stop it, stop it, don't do that, that's not going to work out well for you. That's what they were doing. And so Ezekiel, one of the prophets was going around and preaching and prophesying. Well, there's a thing we learn in the Old Testament about this thing called the school of the prophets. So these prophets actually had these like assistants and understudies that would follow them around, okay? And as they would follow them around and while they were preaching, they would write stuff down. And over, you know, however long, they would have quite a bit of written material. Well, one day, Ezekiel dies. And the understudies and the school of prophets would get together and they would gather all their writings. And what didn't happen was one of the assistants would go to the supply closet, grab a stapler, come back out, square up all the parchment and go click, all right, there's your book of Ezekiel. That is not what happened. What did happen though was they would come together and basically somebody would be like, hey, is anybody here a good editor? We need to take all these writings and edit and structure and form them into a readable book. Okay, that is the most normal thing in the world to do because that is how books are made, right? So if inspiration is not an event, because if it's just an event, I don't know how to explain why this is switching between first and third person. I don't know how to explain that, but if it's a process, that means that the school of the prophets, these assistants who followed Ezekiel around, were also a part of the inspiration process. 
that God was guiding and directing their lives, that they were divinely appointed to do their job. And so here we see one of the, you know, assistants adding, you know, verse number two and three in there to maybe give it a little clarification, a little structure. And that shouldn't bother us one bit because, again, they were also a part of the inspiration process. Um, the Bible is divine in origin, but if we're going to be honest, there's also a human output because God chose people to write. God didn't distance himself and separate himself from humanity and write the Bible all by himself up in heaven and then drop us down these golden tablets. No, he got involved with us and he decided to use us to write the words. The next example from Paul. Okay, why in the world is there pagan Greek poetry in our Bible? What is it doing? Okay, this shows that God is allowing Paul to sort of have some input. Why? Well, because God chose Paul. He trusts Paul. He knew that Paul was going to be the one to say what needed to be said and to represent the Lord, right? So essentially, God's being like, okay, Paul, you want to take something from the culture to communicate to the audience that you're talking to. Okay, remember, he was talking to some Greek philosophers who would have been familiar with this guy's poetry. He's like, okay, Paul, you want to, you want to use that to connect to your audience, to bridge a gap between, you know, you and them, to, you know, but then ultimately to repurpose it and reconnect it back to me. Good job, Paul. Two thumbs up. There you go. Awesome job. And so there is this mixture of the Bible is a divine book and it's a human book. And in saying that it's a human book in no way undermines its authority, in no way undermines its integrity or its, its reliability. It's just simply being honest about the book that we have, that God chose people to write the words. And to me, it's just this reminder that God loves us. And he desires relationship with us. And, and th that's just so important to him, right? And so to me, it's just this reminder of how much God loves us. I think that's an amazing thing. One of, the, one of the best things that we can do is just to let the Bible be what it is and stop trying to make it something that it isn't. The Bible is not a science textbook. It is not a rule book. And yes, I know there's rules in it. It's not a clear-cut instruction manual with very easy black and white answers to every question you're going to ask it. Yes, I would say there's some instructions in there you'd be wise to follow, but that's not how it operates first and foremost. The Bible is a story. It's a true story, and it's a story of how God created us because he loves us and he has a plan and purpose for our lives, but because of us, things got a little messed up. But then how ultimately through his son Jesus, he used Christ to redeem and to really bring about the restoration and redemption process of all things. And in, in through these ancient writings, there are truths about who God is and his character and truths about the plan of salvation and the plan, of, the plan and purpose of everything for us and for all of creation. And these are truths that transcend all cultures throughout all time and all history. So I think that gives us at least the start of a better understanding of what inspiration is. And so uh, one, one quick thing, though, and then I'll, I'll conclude. Um, if I was being critical of myself in this last point, so I talked about having a better understanding of inspiration, and that's kind of step two, because the first step would be, yeah, but how do we actually know it is the Word of God, right? Like, how do I know I can actually trust the Bible when it says it is the inspired Word of God? And so I've only got a few minutes, but let me just say a couple quick things. Christianity didn't start with a book. 
it started with an event, okay? The event was the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, if that event doesn't happen, we do not have this, or more specifically, the New Testament never gets written, right? That's why the New Testament was written, to announce the proclamation of the good news. And so Christianity is contingent on historical evidence. Many other religions are not. And so I believe first the evidence, therefore I believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible first, and that's why I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus first, and that's why I believe in the Bible. So I believe in the evidence. Now, you may be asking, yeah, well, how do we know the resurrection really happened? Well, you're in luck. It just so happens that earlier this year I preached a message called The Evidence for the Resurrection. Go check it out if you haven't, okay? I think it's pretty good if I do say so myself, all right? But it would logically follow that, okay, so if that event actually happened in history, then that means Jesus really was God. He really was who he says he was. And that means that if he really was God, then that means the Bible really is the Word of God. And if it really is the Word of God, then it, I can absolutely trust it when it says that it is inspired. And then how could it be anything other than the authority for our life? So I trust the evidence, I trust Jesus, and that's why it gives me the confidence to trust the Bible when it says that it's the Word of God. So, that is where I'm going to end today. As I said, next week I'm going to continue and get into some more attacks of the dark arts and how we can defend ourselves. I'll give you a quick little preview because we're going to get into some more difficult and deep stuff. I'm going to talk about... Um, some attacks that I see very frequently, you know, what do we do when it looks like the Bible is contradicting itself or being inconsistent, where one passage of Scripture says this and another passage seems to say something totally different? What do we do about that? Uh, what do we do about some of the, the laws in the Old Testament that are very, very difficult and challenging that we can, if we are honest with ourselves, we would read them and be like, I don't really like that. That does not sound too great. What are we supposed to do about those types of things? And then I'm going to get into two, I'll just say, touchy subjects, hot topics. And I want to talk about slavery. Why is there slavery in the Bible? And specifically, why does Paul talk about it in the New Testament in the letter of Ephesians? And then also, I want to talk about some Bible verses that seemingly have a very unequal view of women and what in the world are we supposed to do about them. So hopefully that piques your interests. I hope you will come back next week as we continue Defense Against the Dark Arts. That is all I have for you today, though, everybody. Thank you, thank you.